so I started getting prepped for Exodus 5 this week, and it feels really good to be in Exodus because it feels like we're making progress. <laughs> like we're on the second book of the Bible, and I'm like, oh, good, we're finally going to get to some plagues. But then it's almost like the Lord's trying to tell you a message. No, we're not getting to plagues yet. There's a little more setup work before we get to the fun stuff. And uh, so in Exodus 5 and 6, um, we're not quite to the plagues yet, which has been interesting. We've had, right, six chapters of setup for what's going to be kind of this turning point event in history. And most of the setup, the core message is Moses needs to learn some things before God's going to do some things. And we're going to see that he continues to learn in context Moses has been arguing with God and gave him a bunch of excuses why he couldn't be the one to do this, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Um, so he gives all these excuses, and then God answers each of those excuses by basically saying, Moses, I don't need you because I'm going to do the work. You just need to kind of walk and hold this stick that I'm going to turn into a snake and then turn it back, and, and that's all your job is. So we... Um, we have Aaron and Moses meeting up right at the end of chapter 4. And um, and they go to Egypt at the very end of chapter 4. And I'm just going to read the last verse, verse 31. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And I think this is really cool because you get the first instinct when they come back the next time is that the people bow their heads and worship. They're super glad God hears them, God listens to them. Um and notice that they didn't hear Aaron or Moses. They, it's that the Lord had visited them. Um, so they really, again, Moses is kind of out of the picture and God's getting the central thing. But we're going to see the people of Israel in chapter 5 actually turn against Moses and Aaron right off the bat. So I thought, I just wanted to kind of come back to the end of chapter 4 where they're worshiping and praising the Lord and they're all happy and everything. And they expect this kind of leader that's going to do all these great things for them. And it reminded me of the Passover palms with Jesus. And then within a day, they're turning on Jesus saying, crucify him, right? But people want one kind of leader, but God provides another kind of leader that's maybe not always what they expect. Um, so how do you recognize the, the kinds of leaders you want to have? So, um, And the more, before they're going to leave Egypt, their trials are actually going to get worse and not better. And that's what chapter five is about. So they want to get released from Egypt, but they want it the easy way. And God doesn't necessarily want things to be the easy way for us. He wants it to be the way that builds character. So verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, after this praising and worshiping, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. I always hear Charlton Heston saying that whenever I get to that line. That they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So here's the core conflict of what's going to happen at the beginning of Exodus. Uh, Joseph had a Pharaoh that actually appreciated that Joseph brought God into his presence. Remember that Pharaoh? That Pharaoh was pretty nice to Israel and actually let them all come and stay, gave them the, the best of the herd's land, all these things. But 400 years later, we get a Hamitic Pharaoh who really doesn't like the Shemitic Hebrews living in his land in the first place. He enslaves them, right? We've seen that happen. And Moses comes in with a really simple request. We just want to go out to the wilderness and have a feast. He's not requesting to let us go. He's not requesting any of that. Pharaoh's getting the easy option first. And when he gets hard-hearted here, the options are going to get narrower and narrower, and he's going to eventually lose his workforce. Um, which I thought to me, like, when the Lord talks to us, 
it'd be nice to answer the first time because the, the demands are usually less if we follow God the first time around. Um, and Pharaoh had this chance here. Uh, there's actually in the Louvre in France, there's a leather skull from Ramses II that indicates or talks about how most worker groups in Egypt got religious holidays. They were able to go out into the wilderness and worship or give sacrifice to their gods. And Ramses did that on a regular basis. So what Moses is asking for the Israelites is really common to Egyptian tradition based on what we know from the records. Um, there's another text from Deir el-Medina that states the workers had gone off to offer to their God, but they weren't the Israelite leaders. So when Pharaoh says no here, um, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? Um, he's basically saying no because he's treating Israel differently than all the other work groups, just so that's in our context. Um, there's a book by Brugenheim called Sabbath is Resistance. Um, and this is a quote from that for the next point. I'm going to lead off with that. It's clear that in this system, there can be no Sabbath rest, the system of slavery under Pharaoh. There's no rest for Pharaoh in his supervisory capacity. He's on seven days a week. Therefore, there can be no rest for the Pharaoh's supervisors or taskmasters. And of course, there can be no rest for the slaves who have to satisfy the taskmasters in order to meet Pharaoh's demanding quotas. And it occurred to me that this hasn't changed one bit. In America, we generally have weekends. Almost every boss I've ever seen, they want you to work on the weekends. They have things they need you to get done over the weekend. They're still emailing you over the weekend. You're still getting texts over the weekend. I remember the first week I started as chair at Bethel, I had two faculty text me on a Sunday morning. And I didn't respond to them, but on Monday when I got back to work, I just came into their office, talked to them privately, and I said, I just want you to know, I know we're new working together, but you will never impress me by showing me how much you're working on a Sunday. It will do the opposite. I'll have the opposite opinion of you. Take a day, take a break, honor your God. But when you got those things you have to take care of on a Sunday, your priorities are out of whack. It just shows me you don't know what you're doing. I didn't say the second part of that, I just said the nice first part of that. <laughs> And I just thought one of the ways that we rebel, and that's the point of that book, one of the ways we rebel as believers is we just say, no, our Sabbath is holy. We're going to make it holy, not out of our power, but out of God's. And we're going to honor God on one of those days. So we do a lot of service and we do this on Sundays and whatnot. So Saturdays in this house, we do nothing. Like, really, we play, we play games, we play music, we play computer games. We do anything but work on a Saturday. And we just keep it simple and basic. And it's where our family gets to be tighter or where they where you get sick of each other. So that's why Grant goes off to different churches on Sunday. Is it's just kind of, but it's one of those things where I've always felt like one of those ways in which we obey God and keeping our Sabbath holy, it drives our bosses crazy because they can't control every piece of our life. And you will run into bosses in your life that want you working all the time. And they think because they work all the time, that other people should do the same. And to be a believer and just say, no, thank you. I need to, that's a special day for my family. I'm going to keep it holy. Um, it's one of those ways we can rebel in the world that we live in. And hopefully we all have bosses that don't do that to us often or if at all. But every now and then you run into somewhere it's like they just can't honor that. And Pharaoh was one of those. They'd been 400 years in Egypt and now they run into a Pharaoh that just can't handle the fact that they're not serving. So let my people go. Uh, God's assured it. Moses and Aaron are risking their lives here because the elders don't go with them. <laughs> the elders know better. Pharaoh in this context has total power in Egypt. He is the child of the sun. 
Ra's the sun god, Isis is the river god, and Pharaoh thinks he's the people god. And he actually, or in tradition, the pharaohs would actually go off to the temple on their own to have lunch with the gods. So in the Egyptian worldview, Pharaoh believes he talks to other people. So look real carefully at that last line he said. I don't know this God that you talk to, which implies that when he went off to the temple to talk to gods, there was some entity or being that he believed he was talking to when he would sit down and have lunch, right? So in the Egyptian histories, if that there's anything to that, it doesn't necessarily conflict with the word of God because we believe there are beings that we can't see that can communicate with humans. And we often call them angels or demons. And he is then talking to and getting advice from and listening to people when he goes off. So when he says, I don't know your God, it strongly implies the kind of beings that he at least believes he's talking to when he goes to lunch, right? So request number one gets rejected. And the reason for Pharaoh's rejection is, I don't know your God. Um, and I think that that's kind of a, when you think of the history or the beliefs about the Egyptians, I think that's a really interesting resistance point for him. Um, Pharaoh's saying that there are basically the same thing that we see millions of people say today. I don't know your God, therefore I'm not going to live under his rules. And I'm not obliged to live under his rules. And that's basically the same decision we get today. Verse 3. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let, now he says please, right? So now it's not, it's the request gets a little stronger. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or sword. In other words, this is going to affect your workforce. These millions of people working for you are going to get hurt. So please let us do it. And Moses gives a reason. Then the king of Egypt, I like how it switches to king here because he lost his pharaoh ship in the last interaction. I just turn a phrase. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Now he's blaming Moses and Aaron and go back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now and you make them rest from their labors emphasis on that he's he's at this point yelling or exasperated with moses so request number two adds a consequence we're gonna there's gonna be pestilence or sword both of those would interrupt the economy of egypt if you get everybody's sick they're not making bricks for you if everybody's getting hit then an army just attacked egypt and pharaoh would have to deal with either one of those problems but if you don't believe in in yahweh None of this makes sense to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's still concerned with numbers. Look, he says that the people of the land are many now. Um, and that was a concern of his father too. What about if all these people get to be too many? Remember, his father would have probably been Pharaoh when they started to enslave the Egyptians because it's been 40 years since Moses was... Um, younger and in that place and so it would have probably been this pharaoh's father that had all the babies getting killed so they're both concerned with how many egyptians there are verse six so the same day pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying you shall no longer give people straw to make brick as before let them go and gather straw for themselves and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. Oops, I mentioned bricks a little bit before the Bible did. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. They're lazy people. Lazy people want to take the day off on Saturdays. That's the argument of the world here. Therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men and may they labor in it 
and let them not regard false words. These Moses and Aaron, they're given false words. So Pharaoh now on the second request calls Moses and Aaron liars. He claims the people of Israel are slothful. Um, and it's one of those things that made me think of the McDonald's phrase. If there's time to lean, there's time to clean. Like there's no such thing to an employer of downtime ever. Like they're paying you money to be there. You should always be working. And that's probably a good thing when you're on the clock, but in a slavery system, you're never off the clock. So you can't make an offering of, of, of that. So let, you can't make your offering. So let me punish you in a way that costs him. Oh, I see what I'm doing here. Ha. That's the problem with reading your notes days after you did them. Pharaoh's moved into irrationality at this point. It makes no sense at all to punish his workers. He wants them working. No, you can't take a few days to go do your Sabbath thing or go do your worship to God. But now I'm going to work you harder and wear you out and burn you out. So what he's doing right now is actually destroying his own workforce or he's overusing them and he has to know that that's bad. But when you reject God at the beginning, you're already foolish. You're already making totally irrational choices when you say, I don't know your God, right? Psalms 111.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, his praise endures forever. People that don't fear the Lord are foolish. And the first thing Pharaoh does after he rejects the Lord he starts making really dumb decisions, right? So if they're really good workers, how do we treat them? Let's abuse them. And it makes no sense. He could have just given them the three-day vacation and they'd be back to work. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They've done, a, a, done abominable works and none that doeth good. There is none that doeth good. So when somebody says there's no God, we should know something about their character based on what the Bible says. And Pharaoh's our first example of that. David in the Psalms has tons more of them. The Proverbs has tons more of them. When you run into someone who says there's no God, you should be wary of that person because they're probably making decisions that aren't wise and aren't healthy. We just found out about a friend of ours has a friend, so we don't know this person, that decided when he was 50 years old, he was just going to explore a homosexual lifestyle. Been married for 25, 30 years to his wife. And his wife said, well, I'm a good Catholic. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not, I don't believe in divorce. And he said, well, I'm going to go do this stuff, but here's how I'll honor you. I'll only do it when I'm out of town for work. And so he started calling hookup things and all this stuff. And then our friend is talking to him and basically says, what you're doing is wrong. Like, how's your wife doing after a year of this? And he's like, well, my wife's on anxiety medications and she's got depression. So his wife is just a wreck over all this stuff. And aren't you endangering yourself by meeting up with all these strangers and whatnot? And he's like, well, I get tested for AIDS every three months. And there's no rationality there because he's pursuing this lifelong journey to be happy. And the problem with that is when you pursue things that don't lead to happiness, you start doing horribly self-destructive stuff. And it tends to happen in people's 50s. We call that a midlife crisis, right? I'm coming quick, I'm, I'm on my way. Right, And when people aren't satisfied and they don't have peace in their heart, they start getting anxious. They're like, wow, I'm halfway to the grave and I'm not a happy person. I gotta do something different. And Pharaoh's doing the same thing here. He's just making horrible decisions. So, But he has no moral code, so let's understand that too. And he's having lunch with beings and spirits that talk to him and tell him what to do. 
Um, and then the brick thing came up. And so I started looking how to make brick. And I was going to have some bricks up and running today, but I ran out of time and we were doing other things and we're meeting with our friends that wanted to talk about this person. Um, there is on the website Brick Architecture. Uh, brick's been around since 7,000 BC. It's one of the oldest forms of hu human trades and craft. And the way we make brick really hasn't changed much until the Industrial Revolution. So if you go to England's industrial districts, they're all brick because they started manufacturing brick in an automated way. But we still know how to do it by hand, and we have done it for hand by hand for roughly 7,000 years. Here's the coolest part. When we dig up ancient ruins, one of the things that endures is the brick. And so brick lasts for thousands of years, so it's super cool. So when you look at things in, Israel, in Egypt, when we dig up a lot of that brick stuff, most of those bricks were probably made by Israeli slaves during this 400 years because they had this force of a million people to produce brick. So, And I'm not talking about the limestone on the pyramids. I'm talking about the pottery, the, the grain storage stuff under Joseph. So as they started constructing all these causeways for the river and everything else, that brick was likely Israeli brick when we look at it. So... And they've got cool pictures. I can pass this around if you want to. But there are records of how Egyptian brickmaking got done. We know it with little stick figure drawings. where They were so proud of their brickmaking, they could show how to do it. So I just want to walk you through. Oh, and here's the other stuff about brickmaking. When we hear the word adobe, I'm thinking Southwest United States, right? Adobe is an Egyptian word. It comes from dobe, um, and it's, uh, it, it is the, the Egyptians that kind of mastered this brick making stuff in mass with human labor to do it uh and it, it spread all over the world so um here's how you make brick and put this in context of the pharaoh saying they can't use straw anymore because that makes no sense unless you do the geek stuff right so here's how it works first you take topsoil and you make thick mud with water we've all done that as kids first step kids do it then you add straw. Now, if I were a kid and I knew this, my forts would have been brick and not plywood. Like, this is not hard, right? So you add chaff or some sort of straw. You cut the straw small, but not too small, because you want it to run through the brick kind of like rebar. So you want those little fibers. Today, we actually can use fiberglass and whatnot. So even when we make concrete and we mix in fiberglass, we're doing the same thing. Then you knead the mud for four days. That's the part where a kid wouldn't do this anymore because you got to keep your attention for four days. When I say knead the mud, they put on big like paddleboard feet things and they'd walk on the mud and just keep treading it. So hard work, hot work, you do it uh, with those big shoes. Then you'd leave it for a couple days and then you'd come back and knead it again after it had thickened. Now the work gets to be exhausting because you're trying to like move that stuff and it's starting to feel more like pottery clay then you pour it into molds after you've loosened it back up after 20 minutes you remove the molds you probably know all of this as an art student don't you not deep up, detail by detail but i think okay then you remove the molds so when they do this they'd lay out acres of bricks out into the sun and right and then you the dobe would harden with that stuff in there. And then here's the other key. You'd also use straw and sand on the floor before you put those molds down. And this is just like using wax paper when you bake stuff. The idea is you want those bricks to come up off the ground when you're done. So the sand and the straw would help to make that so it didn't stick, but it could still dry out. Then you'd dry the bricks for one week, and then you're ready to build. And whatever you build with those bricks, 
lasts for thousands of years, right? Um, so that's brick making. So when he says, and well, I'll just go to verse 10 because the story tells itself. Then the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Okay, now they can't bind the brick. So half their bricks are going to crumble when they're done. So that really kills their production of high quality bricks. Why would Pharaoh do this? Why would he want low quality bricks for his own construction projects? And the second thing is, some of them are another percentage of them are going to stick to the ground when they try to pluck them up because they don't have that straw as a loosening agent. Um, so go get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. It is easier to go out and harvest your own straw to make the brick than to try to make the brick without straw. So they're sending now a percentage of their workforce off to gather the straw that the Egyptian taskmasters used to just bring to them in wagon loads. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw, anything so they don't stick to the ground and so that they can bind together. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. And also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Everyone I know over 40 years old has experienced this in the workplace. You do a great job, you're a great worker, then your boss says, oh, you're a great worker. I wanna give you more responsibilities. I wanna to add to what you have. And you're a young worker, you're going, yeah, well, that's, I'm getting promoted, this is what it's all about. I'm gonna move up the ranks, here we go. And then you start moving up the ranks, you do a good job at that, and you get more and more and more. And now you're working weekends, holidays, evenings, your stress level goes up, your mental wellness goes, and at some point you hit a point where you go to your boss just saying, this is too much. And then they're like, oh, you're a bad worker. You're lazy, right? And that turns on you really quick. And you're like, no, I was a good worker. Remember back when I was a good worker? I'd like to be that good worker again. But this is, I think, how the world operates, is that they want more and more and more, and they want to give you less and less to do it with. Right? So we're going to cut your budgets, but we want you to get your enrollment up. What? How does that happen? Well, figure it out. You're smart. You're a good worker. And you're kind of like, well, like, do you want to invest in this or don't you? Because we can work with whatever resources you give us. Israelis could, or the, the children of Israel couldn't do that because they were set, the same quotas had to get met with less and less resources and materials and people to do it with. So... This is a good way for the Pharaoh to completely abuse this population and get less bricks in the, in the process. So another thought on this, and I thought this was a great kind of David Gusick point on this, this work that the Israelis are doing, now everyone in Israel is connected to this task of getting freedom. There's no, it's just because they didn't go in and talk to Pharaoh doesn't mean they don't get to participate in this process of getting freedom. And I think that's kind of cool. The whole country is uniting through hardship. Verse 15, then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten, but it's the fault of your own people. Why aren't the children of Israel turning to God or to Moses or Aaron at this point? The fact that they go to Pharaoh shows almost why God is doing this. They're not turning to God when they have difficulties. They're still turning to Pharaoh. So they complain to Pharaoh. They want justice from a guy who's creating an unjust situation. This makes no sense for the Israelites. They're making bad decisions. 
Don't go to unjust people looking for justice. You probably won't find it. So the children of God have to be wary when they do this. Um, instead of justice, they're going to be given more harshness from this person. And now they're asking for the same bondage that they were crying out for. So they're basically asking for the things that when Moses was in the wilderness, they were crying out to the Lord. They're asking to go back to that situation. Um, Exodus 2.23, remember the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and they came up to God because of their bondage. So now they're asking for what they had when they were groaning to God before. And as believers, I think sometimes we can do that too. We can go to God and ask for things, but when God gives us a harsh journey or a, a journey that's helping us grow to get there, we're like, well, can we just have it the way we, we were before, back when we weren't happy, right? Verse 17, but he said, you are idle, idle. The double use of idle there is to create an emotional state. He's exasperated. Therefore, you see, and again, they're going to an irrational man and he's just coming back to what he thinks. He's repeating what he said before. Irrational people do that often. They just keep, they get caught in a mental loop where they can't think in any other way about it. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work for no straw shall be given to you and you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. On that same scroll that's in the Louvre, there's a brick master, uh, Pahishupedet, son of Pazer, is one of the brick masters. He fails to deliver his quota of 2,000 bricks. Um, and so there's actually a record of some of the taskmasters failing to meet their quotas. What we don't know is the scroll cuts off to find out what happens to the brick master. And I'm like, what happens when you don't make your quota? But we don't have a record of what happens to a brick master when their people don't meet a quota. Uh, according to a list on a leather scroll, um, and again, that's from the Ramses II dynasty. Um, the Bible, however, gives us a better record. It reports beatings. The children of Israel are beaten when they don't meet their quotas. So the Bible actually has a record of what happens. The Egyptians tended to not mention what they did to their people when they didn't meet it. Verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, this is funny, they go into Pharaoh on their own, get yelled at, and then look at what they do when they walk out the door. They met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. Put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now the justice of Pharaoh is not, now the injustice is not Pharaoh's fault. They're blaming Moses for what they created and for what Pharaoh, who's already been unjust, is continuing to do. Pharaoh's being consistent in his rejection of the Lord. Moses and Aaron are consistent in their request. The people of the Israel who were praising and worshiping God are now cursing Aaron and Moses within a very short amount of time. I started to think about myself on this and I feel pretty guilty. There's a lot of times when I feel like I want more from the Lord um, and you blame other people for it. And I, I didn't want to like just dismiss the children of Israel as other people because I'm a child of God too. And I think we do this all the time. I'm not growing spiritually, so it must be my pastor's fault. It must be my church's fault. It must be that the worship team isn't doing stuff well, right? Or 
I see unbelievers do this too. The Spanish Inquisition was this horrible thing. It must be that all Christians are evil people, right? Or we look at how horrible our boss is, we complain about our job, and then, then our job doesn't go very well. But we have horrible hearts about it in the first place, right? And so this happens a lot with believers, I think, is that we want everything from God, but we never want to go through the growth process that God wants to give us sometimes to help us get there. He, God's getting them ready for freedom, but they're still thinking like slaves. And we do that too. We can get saved. We can accept Jesus into our life. We can still think like we're slaves instead of that we are free people. And Moses does this too. So Moses returns to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Did the Lord bring the trouble or did Pharaoh bring the trouble? The Lord's allowing these things to happen and there's things going there, but causally Moses is really speaking for the children of Israel right now. Lord, why have you brought this? You brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I've come to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Nothing has happened. So he's going to God and he's saying, God, this isn't working. Um, we can commend Moses here because he actually, unlike the children of Israel, he actually takes it to God. And I think that's pretty cool. Honesty for God is good. God's big enough. He can handle it. Um, and Moses is going to learn that his plan, Moses's plan, is not God's plan. Moses is still learning too, which is, again, why it's like here we are five chapters into Exodus, and this is about Moses getting prepared to do the work that God wants him to do. All the glory of what God has planned for his life, has he has to go through this learning process for it to be really God's work that's being done. So God might know what Pharaoh's going to do. In Exodus 3, he already predicted it. And in Exodus 3.19, God said, I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. And I will do this in his midst after he will let you, after this, that he will let you go. So God already knew, told Moses all this was going to happen. And now Moses is complaining about it. So Pharaoh could have let him go, but he didn't. In this sense, I think the core message is Moses and the people of Israel should be trusting the Lord right now. To endure hardship with grace is something that could actually convert people and whatnot. But at this point, they're not enduring it with grace at all. They're kind of whiny and complainy, and God's got to do some work in their life. So God promises salvation, and he promises God wonders. Both of those are going to happen. I'm going right into six because it's the same story. Then the Lord said to Moses, it's interesting how they put a chapter break between a comment and a God's response, right? And you wonder why they made these decisions. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I do, will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. Now you get to see Moses blames God, but God gently points out to him that God hasn't actually done anything yet. So I like the phrase, now you shall see, because everything that's happened so far has been human nonsense. It's been humans talking to humans and humans making decisions. But God's like, okay, are you all done doing what you're going to do? Because now it's my turn, and he's going to flip his card and play his hand. Not only will God's plan work, it's going to work with a strong hand. Uh, this has to seem impossible to Moses at the time he's hearing it. Again, we see it in retrospect. Moses is looking forward. He doesn't know what God's hand looks like. So when God says a strong hand, um, and translation-wise it is a, a hand that is super strong. Um, God, Moses really doesn't know what this looks like and the impossibilities that are about to happen 
Moses isn't conceiving of those. Verse 2, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I was not, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I've established my covenant with them to give them to the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. So God gives Moses, in response to Moses' complaint, notice that God doesn't really address the complaint. He gives Moses a history lesson. This is who I am. I think there's some interesting phrases in here. I am the Lord is all one word. Oh, where it says to him, Moses said, God spoke to Moses and said in the Hebrew, to him, I am the Lord is only one word. So, and God spoke to Moses and said, Jehovah. It's not a whole sentence there. It's just one word, Jehovah. And I think that's kind of cool. God's answer to Moses was Jehovah. You don't even know what you're getting. You're dealing with a God of the universe. Know who you're talking to. Jehovah appeared, and then as God Almighty as El Shaddai, it named Jehovah my name the Lord. So it's interesting that the Lord is basically talking to Moses saying, Jehovah and El Shaddai, which are two names we saw throughout Genesis, but it's not the name that God gave to Moses, which was Hayah, right? Hayah, Hayah, I am who I am. Both God, God is both almighty, he has power over everything, and he's Yahweh, which is a personal form of Lord. And this implies to Moses that he's saying, look, I'm not only your personal God, but I'm also the almighty God. You see what God's saying to Moses there? You're seeing all this turmoil and strife, but you don't realize I made you, I created everything, I'm in power over everything, and even though I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as a powerful God, but my name Jehovah, I was, but by my name Jehovah, I wasn't known to them. Moses, you're going to get to know me personally, and you're going to see my power. And I think that's pretty cool, which gives credit to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who didn't really see all that power and wonder and still believed in the Lord and still faithfully followed him. So God's about to do something. And this is where I just think it's great writing. The buildup to what God's about to do here is pretty cool. And I have, re I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel. I've heard them complain whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my government, covenant. So in Genesis, God makes wor the world and he makes covenants. In Exodus, God's going to fulfill his covenants to the Egypt, to the children of Israel. God is more than just almighty. He wants to be our personal God. He's more than a promise. He's a fulfillment of a promise. And if you think of I am who I am in a non-time-centered sense, it's a abstracted root word that doesn't have a, a tense to it. He's already fulfilled these promises. From God's perspective, it's already done. That's going to get to be really obvious in the next thing that God says. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So it's time to let the Israelites know the plan. It then occurred to me, wait a second, Moses hasn't actually told them the plan yet. He's just told them God is here and, and God wants them to have this vacation time. But now he's going to go back to the Israelites and share the bigger plan with the Israelites. We'll see how they receive that. 
Um, all the wills here, I will, there's seven of them. I will bring you, I will rescue you, I'll redeem you. I'll take you, I'll be your God. I'll bring you into the land, I'll give it to you. All of those I wills are in the past present tense. He's already done it, right? And it's hard to pick that up in the English. I am has already done these things. God speaks as though the future has already happened. In the English, it would be like, tomorrow I have brought you out. It's already happened. And I think that's a beautiful way that this to translate that and understand it. From God's perspective, he's already met these promises. It's already a done deal. Because when God says something will be, it will be. I am the Lord, just like Jehovah. This is a signature at the end of the letter, right? It's like he wrote them a letter, and at the very end you see the colon there, and it just says Jehovah. So it's a signed thing, right? So says God. Verse 9, so Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Wait, what a... The Moses we know, there's no complaints, there's no arguments. All this hardship, suddenly he's just doing what God tells him to do. Moses has grown. Moment of truth. So Moses spoke. He didn't speak through Aaron. Do you see? catch that too? He doesn't even ask for his little personal speaker to do it. He just does it himself. So in verse 9, there's a few short words there, but we see massive growth for Moses. All of this hardship has changed him. So Moses spoke. Thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Um, anguish of spirit is an interesting phrase. Doubting God will cause anguish, and anguish is the reason to doubt God. It's a circular kind of thinking, right? If I'm in stress, then God must be upset, not real, mean, and cruel. Right? And if God's being cruel and upset and, and whatever, then my life has no meaning and you get caught in this cycle. right? And people do this all the, the time where they, the thoughts themselves are self-reinforcing. And it's a tough cycle to get out of. If you have anguish of spirit, that can be a form of cruel bondage. So the bondage that's there, anguish of spirit and cruel bondage, that bondage may not just be from Egypt. It might also be because the children of Israel have their own anguish of spirit. This has been shown in all psychological studies of slaves. The slave mentality, which doesn't necessarily mean you're in a legal state of slavery, but slave mentality shows that you so hyperinflate the power of your master, whatever your master is, that the perception <laughs> is they have more power and control over what you're doing than you do. Slaves feel like their master always knows what they're doing, even in the privacy of their home. Slaves feel like their master would catch them, even if they were miles away. They could be countries away from their master, but the master is this ever-present force in their head. And it's really horrible how people get themselves caught in this, because the only bondage they have is what they've made up to themselves. Right? Slaves can't imagine their own freedom, because every time they think of freedom, they associate it with pain because they've been beaten, they've been punished. We see this with prison studies and that sort of thing, is that to even think a good thought kind of hurts mentally for people that are in a slave mentality, right? Because the good thought always leads to punishment. So you don't have them. This is how we train elephants at circuses. You'd think these massive, powerful elephants, they could just wreck the tent and run whatever. But when they're little baby elephants, you tie them up to a leash, you put a little stake in the ground, and they learn that they can't break the leash. They can't go anywhere. And when they're bigger and huge, that same little stake can take a, an elephant could twitch its neck and pull the stake out, but they never do 
because they assume that leash has more power than it actually has in their life. Satan uses the same tool in our life. Paul says we shouldn't be conformed to this world, but by trans by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. You have to tell yourself. You have to let God teach you and tell you that little stake in the ground can't hold you back. It's not the thing that controls you anymore. You have freedom. We hear this all over the place in the New Testament. You have freedom in Christ. Most people come to follow Christ, but they never try to pull the stake out of the ground. They never really come out of that. They don't transform their mind and reteach themselves. How do you transform your mind? Bible gives really simple instructions. You come to Bible study every week and you study what the Bible says. And that's how you transform your mind. These words go through our head and they counteract what the world tells us to think. And they do it consistently. Ezekiel 20, I'm going to read a larger passage. So if you want to turn to Ezekiel. We get a little snippet from Ezekiel where God is talking through Ezekiel and explains his decision here in Exodus, right? So I want to go back and... Um, I think it's pretty cool because Moses is bringing all these complaints of the people to his doorstep. The people are rebelling not against Pharaoh. They're actually agreeing with Pharaoh. They should be slaves. And they're mad at Moses and Aaron for this God message. God takes this personal. And we're going to see that coming up is that the way God reads this is they're rebelling against him. So Ezekiel 20 verse 5, and I'll kind of read from there. In the day when I chose Israel and lifted up my hand into the seat of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted my hand unto them, saying, the Lord, the Lord, I am the Lord your God, in the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt into a land that I espied for them, I saw for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. In this day when I was going to let them go, I had great things in mind for Israel. Verse seven, then I said to them, cast you away every man in the abominations of his eyes and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt for I am the Lord, your God. Basically God's talking to Israel saying, I want you to throw off what, what Egypt has to offer and take what I have to offer. Verse eight, but they rebelled against me and they wouldn't listen to me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I said, I'll pour out my fury on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. That's right now in Exodus. God's thinking to himself, I should just pour my fury out on my children because they won't listen to, they won't obey. But I wrought my, I didn't for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen. The reason God doesn't go after Israel right now is because he has already put his name onto their wagon. And if he attacks them, then the Pharaoh's just going to say, see, look at these lazy people. And their God doesn't even take care of them. Their God just attacks them. And so it's not for their sake that he does this. It's because God name, God's name needs to be revered. So I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen, among whom they were, and in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. So this is where they're at. They're in Egypt. God said he's going to do it. And through Moses, he's already said to Pharaoh, the Lord God says, let my people go. So if he goes any other direction right now, it's his name, it's his, he's taking responsibility for the whole situation. So God restrains himself because he didn't want to disgrace his name before the Egyptians. How does God manifest godly anger, righteous anger? So anger is not a sin because God gets angry. 
He just gracefully gives Moses the plan again. All of that that he just said in Exodus, if you turn back to, or he just said in Ezekiel, all of that thinking that's in God's head, here's how it actually comes out in verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt to let the children of Israel go out of this land. That's all we see in Exodus. So God's thinking all of these thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways. And he makes a decision and all Moses has to deal with is God just repeats himself. Can you just go do what I said? Can you go talk to Pharaoh, please? Can you just teach some music lessons, Grant? Can you just do what I've asked you to do? Not just a three-day retreat. Now God wants full release because Pharaoh has defied him. So what he could have just had a three-day retreat and kept his workforce. Now Pharaoh's going to lose his whole workforce, right? He's going to lose the blessing of God because the Israelites were a blessing to the land of Egypt. And frankly, they still are. Egypt's one of the only countries that still exists from the ancient days, Israel and Egypt. So God has still kind of kept Egypt around, right? So sometimes I look at my notes and I pray about them and I just think I want to skip them and keep going. So there's things I'm skipping. Verse 12, and Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. They haven't listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? Now Moses is back to arguing with God, right? And this phrase of uncircumcised lips, all I can think about is lips getting cut off or something. And I give, it seems like an odd phrase. So you start looking up the words going, wait, is that, how does that make sense? They're not listening to God because Moses was not circumcised, right? He's an uncircumcised person trying to talk to the people of Israel. So wait a second. When Moses was in a basket, and the daughter of Pharaoh took him out of the basket, at what point would he have been circumcised? So either the mom kept the kid for eight days and then put him in a basket because you circumcise on the eighth day, or in order to try to keep him alive, they didn't circumcise him at the very beginning. This explains that whole situation. Remember in Exodus 4, when the wife is mad about the circumcision and whatnot, and she's throwing circumcision parts at Moses, pretty gory scene that we don't normally do sermons on, right? This explains all of it. What if Moses isn't circumcised? And he's trying to say, who am I to talk to these Israelites that are all part of your covenant? They're all circumcised. I'm not even really part of the covenant. So that could be one explanation that connects back to Exodus 4. Um, Another explanation for this is that uncircumcised um, as a person instead of as a physical thing or a figurative version So you can be literally circumcised, right? Or you can be figuratively uncircumcised. This would be the first use of that in the Bible, if that's the case. It gets used often when they talk about the Philistines. The Philistines are an uncircumcised people, which meant as a people, they're uncircumcised. They don't live under God's law. They don't follow the covenant. So it could be Moses is basically saying figuratively that I'm an uncircumcised person and who am I to talk to these people with my mouth? So... Moses is still grown. In Exodus 4.10, he says, I can't do this. But look at what he's saying now. He's saying, I'm not worthy to do this. And I think that's a huge maturity shift for Moses again. And you look at these finer details and you start to see how Christians grow. First, he said, I can't, I'm not able. Now he says, I'm not worthy of anything, God. And I think that's a really humbling place to be. But I think it's the older I get, the more I think that's a beautiful place for a person's heart to be. 
When you say, Lord, I'm not worthy, that is not the same thing as saying, Lord, I can't or Lord, I won't. It's just saying, I'm not worthy of this, Lord. You've put me in a position that I don't feel privileged to. When I got to talk at the high school graduation, that's my thought on the stage. Not that I'm super mature, but all I could think is, Lord, I'm not worthy to talk to a thousand people and share my heart with them. Who am I to sit in this situation? And I just think you get in that place and God can use you because you're not the one taking the credit, right? So Egyptian or uh, Moses probably doesn't talk like a Hebrew. He was raised Egyptian. Um, he's probably feeling like he's not very righteous, that he's resisted God so many times. Um, and God, I think, is so gracious with Moses because God just moves on like it never even happened. Notice in verse 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and Pharaoh the king to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Notice that God doesn't, he just lets Moses stay there. He doesn't counteract it because it's not an argument. Moses is just stating truth. I'm not worthy. I am uncircumcised in a figurative sense or however you want to read that. I love how God just goes, okay, now I got you where I want you. I'm ready to move. You're, you're broken in some ways. Um, and I think that's part of uh, with Doggy Shadow at the beach and he worked so, so hard and he was swimming so, so hard. And then all of a sudden his whole body just gives out and he's just broken. I think that that's a lot of times how we break animals too, right? If we're going to break a horse, we walk them around in a circle until they finally give in, right? They have their own will. And at some point they got to just realize it's not your will, it's the master's will. And God does this. And I feel like at this point, we're at that point with Moses. It's not Moses' will anymore. It's just, he's ready to just serve his master. And at that point he can fulfill his purpose in life. And I'm not saying we're all horses, but we are all humans. And God is a mightier being than we are, just like humans that have mastery over animals. And I think that sometimes God gave us those animals so we could learn that concept. We could learn what it means. And, a, and an animal that serves its purpose is often a very happy animal, right? Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When, God, when Moses admits his sin and his unworthiness, God forgets it totally, and it takes a question mark, and then then, the next thing, then the Lord, it takes no time at all, that sin is gone. And God just moves forward at this point. He doesn't even talk about moving forward. He just moves forward. Um, Moses at this point then, in saying that he's not worthy, he actually is worthy. I think this is the chapter break, by the way. At this point, you notice the next verses, it goes on to a totally different thing. That's the end of the story. That's the conclusion of it. I would see this as a better place where the scroll would end and there'd be another little scroll with the next piece. But as with Genesis, if we follow the pattern, anytime you finish a good story, it's time for a genealogy. Because that's what we do at the end of stories, right? We, we roll the credits, and the credits need to roll. So we get uh, five generations of Israelites here in a genealogy. I'm going to break it down once again. I will not do this when we get to other portions of the Bible where there are chapter after chapter of genealogy. No way will I look up all the names. I shouldn't say that because I geeked out on this again. But I don't think last time we went through the genealogy, you could see with the 12 tribes that there were different personalities in the tribes. I don't see anything here. So I'm just going to throw in the translated names for fun, but I didn't see any patterns or anything we should see. I think we should notice a couple things. Uh, we're only going to see three of the 12 tribes represented. So when we see this genealogy, we get Reuben, Sibian, 
and Levi's descendants. And that might be because Moses, when he's writing this, feels like that blessing has to be in one of those places. So already the Jewish people have stopped tracking Judah as much as they used to, which is kind of why when they pick David, like everyone's kind of flabbergasted because wait, David's not, he's from Judah. How can the king come from Judah? So that's where God has to intervene there is because the Jewish people have already taken their eyes off tracking that prize throughout, which is kind of interesting. So verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. Head means chief or Lord or governing authority over a house. doesn't mean a literal head. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, dedicated, distinguished, surrounded by a wall and by vineyard. You remember those from last time? No? Okay. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Sibion were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. Day of God, right hand, united. He will establish Tawny and desired, even if he's only ha if he's half, half Canaanite. These are the families of Simeon. Um, and again, um, we jump to Levi here, so we're, we're only going through three families. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Each of these three, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, each of these three will have a distinct and different role, their descendants in the temple. So when they could become priests, they'll be Gershonic priests, Kohathi priests, and Merari priests. Um, and they'll have different roles. They are exile, assembly, and bitter when they're translated. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. That's the first generation. The next generation, the sons of Gershon were Libdi and Shimi, according to their families, white and renowned. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishhar, Hebron, and Uziel, exalted people, shining oil, association, and my strength is God. And the years of the life of Kohath were 150, 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi, sick and yielding. These are the families of Levi according to the generations. Um, notice when we get to the next, the third generation in verse 20, there's only three of the four sons of Kohath that are going to get outlined. So apparently Hebron is not part of the equation or they don't really get into it. Um, and we don't know if that's because Hebron didn't have kids or because they're again taking a family because of sin and assuming they're not part of that blessing or not part of that line. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, which means Jehovah's glory, his father's sister as wife, so he married his aunt, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, great-great-grandkids of Jacob, are Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. Uh, and then we go over to the brother of, of Amram, which is Ishar next. The sons of Ishar were Kohath, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Zikri? Bald? Huh. So Korah means bald. I just thought that was nice. Um, bald, sprout, and memorable. Um, and I can see even today where people, parents nickname their kids Sprout. I mean, that just, I think it's cute that that ends up in the Bible. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphon, greatest name, Elzaphon. It sounds, anyways, Zithri, uh, those mean is like God, God is protected in protection of Jehovah. So Uziel was clearly naming his kids Jewish names. Generation four, the sons of Aaron. So now we're four generations down. Aaron took himself Elisheba, God has sworn, daughter of Abibadad. Um, Abibadad means my kinsman is noble. Sister of Nashon, which means enchanter, as a wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, 
and Ithamar. Generous, he is father, God has helped, coast of palms. And then we get the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah, Moses and Aaron's cousin, were Asher, Elkanah, Abiezaph, which means prisoner God has made and father has gathered. These are the family of the Korahites. And note the Korahites here because Moses had an issue with them. So when Moses is writing the scrolls, I think he added this in. um, Because in number 16, the Korahites lead a rebellion against Moses. And that's all part of the story. So he puts them in here and they're kind of an odd addition, putting somebody's cousins in. But he throws them in here because I think they're going to be relevant later in the in the narrative. Generation five, we get to see one of these people have a great, 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 great grandchild of Jacob, and that is Eleazar, Aaron's son, took her for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as a wife. She bore him Phineas, and these are the heads of the fathers of the Levites according to their families. Um, so only three of the twelve tribes get listed. Oh, I never looked up the names for verse twenty-five. These are the, what are they, Alyssa? Have you got them there? Putiel and Phineas. Putiel, afflicted of God. That's not a good name. And Phineas, mouth of brass. He's got a big mouth. (laughs) So we got the great, 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 great grandchild, and he's got a big mouth on him. These are the same Aaron and Moses... This is kind of the end of the chapter, verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Egypt from the land of Egypt according to their armies or families is another way to translate that word. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. So you think they're trying to make a point here? This is the Moses and Aaron that we've been talking about because surprise, it's the same Moses and Aaron that's actually in the lineage And these were heads of families, Moses and Aaron, right? They're not just any old Moses and Aaron. It's the same ones that fit into our genealogy. I think the writer thought that 25 through 27 would add some super punchline legitimacy to this whole thing, right? So at first we see this nameless baby in a thing, and this nameless baby gets taken in by the pharaohs, and this kind of irrelevant guy is a shepherd out in the wilderness, and the irrelevant shepherd guy in the wilderness comes back and gets rejected by Israel, causes all this brick-making trouble, and then all of this stuff happens. It's a giant disaster, and God says, finally, I think I can use you, Moses. And it's the same Moses that's in the line of the Levites. And they say it like three or four times, right? It's that Moses. Look here. It's the guy who's supposed to lead us. He's in that position. So that obscure nameless kid actually has a name, a heritage, and it's part of a larger story. Ever read a fantasy story where the the main character is just this nameless wilderness, backwoods, farm kid living with Uncle and Aunt Baru, and then all of a sudden <laughs> they find out they're the king. They have the lineage of the king. They are the great champion of the universe that'll set all right and wrong normal again. That's a Moses story. They're taking a narrative from Moses where it's like that obscure kid living out herding the sheep, that's the one that will become the father, the leader of this nation. And Moses and Aaron, king and priest, will lead this nation to be a complete nation born out of spiritual guidance from God, not out of military power of the world. This is the first nation on earth that's going to be born in this kind of way. That Moses and Aaron are the same Moses and Aaron we've been reading about now for six chapters. And I just, 
sometimes you just read past those things and if you just stop for a second on them you're like oh yeah that's kind of cool and I can see what the writer's trying to do there. They're like, surprise, but we already knew it because we've heard about Moses and Aaron before. So it's not as thrilling when you read the book the second time, right? Um, so uh, verse 28, I think, is just doing some repeating stuff. Um, the intro for chapter 7 is really here at the end of this one. Again, I think they, they did a uh, kind of a repeat thing. And what I thought about with this, where it says, and it came to pass, because it feels like we've already read that. It's almost like when you start a new story, because we just got done with genealogy and look, Moses and Aaron. I think that was the natural scroll ending or where the end of the scroll would have been. When we read verse 28, 29, and 30, it's like we're starting a new scroll. And it's like when you come back to a weekly TV show and they say, last time on Zach's Adventures, Zach was stuck in a pit and trying to get out and screaming for help saying, I have to sit by her for the rest of my life. <laughs> and then the show starts because this is where we were at last time we were talking. I think that's what's going on in verse 28, 29, and 30. It's simply repeating where we are at as we start into the rest of the story, which we'll do next week. So I'm just going to read them, but we'll really come back to them next time. So, and when last we spoke, um, and it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh the king, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How shall the Pharaoh heed me? And da, 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 that's where we end off. So that's the, remember this from last week. And they bring us back to that point. And then they're going to dig into the next story in chapter seven, which we'll get to next time. And we have two minutes to spare. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, we are so human and we are so unworthy of anything you'd have in our life, but we're going to wait on you. Lord, we want to humble ourselves so that you don't have to do it for us. We'd love to be humbled without doing brickwork. Um, and we'd love to be putting ourselves in that place, Lord, the easy way and to do it upon first request and not have to go through as many trials and temptations and struggles like Moses and the Israelites do. Lord, we're told that these chapters are for our training and for our guidance and for our reproof and that the scriptures are inspired for that. Lord, help us to learn from Moses. Um, help us to not have to touch the stove to realize it's hot, but to learn from the wisdom of others. And Lord, we want to serve you in that kind of way. We want to serve you and we want to be willing servants in all ways. May we be broken for you. Um, Lord, may it not take years and years and years, but may we just know that in you we have freedom, we have truth, and it's not about us, it's not about our ability, it's not about who we are, Lord, that it's your plan that will move forward because you've already completed your promises. So, Lord, we thank you for those thoughts. We thank you for those soothing pieces to our soul. Lord, I want to I pray a special prayer on Alyssa and Zach as they're getting ready to be joined in matrimony, Lord. And when you join two people together, they're not to part. Um, and you'll make one person out of them. Lord, we just thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for their desire to study your word together even before they're married. But Lord, I just pray for their marriage. I pray that you bless it, you anoint it, that it can be a model of gracefulness and service to one another that shines out to everyone they know. Lord, we live in a culture and a society that doesn't honor marriage. They don't value it. They don't put the kind of preciousness on it that it deserves. So, Lord, we need great marriages, Lord, to just shine out like a beacon that this is how we're supposed to live. This is where joy can be found. Um, Lord, so I just pray you bless them in that. Um, 
And for others, Lord, that are, are in the room here that are single right now and called to that, may they just go and, and go into it all out, Lord, and they, may they just serve you with everything they have um, and be joyful in that, Lord. And I just, I pray for both. And I pray for all of us. We pray for the people that are away, Noel, Levi, Catherine, that they can be ministering to the people around them. They can serve the people they know and do it with their whole heart and their whole soul. May you bless them. Uh, may you give them great joy in doing those things. I pray for Jenny as she's been having some anxiety. Uh, may you just give her peace in her heart. May you um, renew her mind and transform it through the study of your word, Lord. May she just find her solace in you and her peace in you. I pray you bless everyone else in this room, Lord. Give us a great week. Go with us this, this week and go before us and fight our battles for us, Lord. We don't have to fight them ourselves because you do it for us. So thank you for that. And Lord, help me get all my paperwork done for tenure. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>